our scripture reading today is from Leviticus 1, 1 to 9. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are also to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So when I get home today, I'm going to preheat the oven and I'm going to start preparing dinner. I'm going to go in to our kitchen and I'm going to strip the membrane off a couple of racks of ribs and I'm going to butcher those ribs. And when I do this, in preparation for a wonderful feast tonight, uh, my wife will be nowhere to be found because she has a weak stomach for raw meat and will not be found in the kitchen. The irony of this is that her father was a butcher and she can't stand the thought of raw meat. You know, the book of Leviticus can have a similar effect on people. It can make people's stomachs churn. As we just heard in his first verses, the first chapter of Leviticus, it's just like all about taking an animal and, and cutting it apart and offering it on this altar as a sacrifice. It's enough to turn people away. And if you have ever tried to read the Bible, like from the beginning, this is where you stop reading, this chapter that we just heard from this morning. Genesis, great, lots of good stuff going on in there. Exodus, lots of action, lots of exciting things. And then you open the book of Leviticus, and you start reading about how you are supposed to cut up animals and burn them to please God. And you say, forget this business, and you shut the book. Why? Well, perhaps it's the gruesome instructions that we've just read, or perhaps it's its irrelevancy. The fact that we read something like this and say, what on earth does this have to do with my life? And I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking about myself too. I've been writing sermons for 20 years, and I've never written a sermon on this passage. I've touched on the book of Leviticus occasionally, but never really focused on it for any significant time. Until now. All November, folks. All November. We're going to talk about this kind of stuff, and it's going to be fantastic. So let's start at the very beginning. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now, 
the beginning, the first phrase of this verse is actually one word in Hebrew, and it would maybe be more accurate to translate it, the Lord continued calling Moses. It's this continual call. And that makes us realize that Leviticus, if we start here as we are this morning, then it's like we're starting with season two of a show that we're watching. We kind of are watching it, and some of it's making sense, but some of it's like there are gaps, and we're not sure what this means or what this symbolizes. So if we want to understand Leviticus, we have to actually turn back the clock a little bit. Israel's story really gets underway in Genesis 12 when God calls Abram. So we're going to do a real fast forward through uh, the first couple of books of the Bible to get us caught up to speed so Leviticus will make a little more sense for us. So we begin in Genesis 12, verse 1 to 4. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. So this promise to Abram that he would be the father of a great nation, he was 75 years old, it must have sounded a little ridiculous, but the years go by, and eventually Abram and his wife Sarah have a son. The promise begins to be fulfilled. Abraham's grandson was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, including Joseph. Joseph is most famously known for his coat of many colors. He was not really liked by his brothers, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And he became a slave, he became a servant in Egypt, but eventually he began to rise up in in position until he was the second in command in all of Egypt. When a famine hit the area, Joseph was in charge of distributing the food, and he used his position of influence to save his family, the very family that had rejected him. The book of Genesis ends with Joseph's death, but also with the reminder of God's promise way back generations earlier to Abram. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's how the book of Genesis ends. By the beginning of Exodus, though, God is nowhere to be found. We're going to read chapter 1, verse 8 through 11 and verse 14. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country." So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Enter Moses, who God called out to, in much the same way he had called out to Abram. And he called Moses to challenge Pharaoh. And the result was the exodus, this mass of people, the Israelites, leaving Egypt, out from under the slavery of the Egyptians, out of the country, across the Red Sea. Moses goes up onto this mountain, he meets with God, he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and he also comes down with detailed instructions for building the tabernacle, a temporary place of worship out in the wilderness for God's people. And toward the end of the book of Exodus, in chapter 39, verse 42 and 43, We read that the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. Now if we want to go back even further than Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 1, this kind of passage reminds us, it provides a little bit of an echo of the creation where God saw what he had done. He said it was good and he blessed it. 
Moses sees the work that the people had done. He sees that it was good work, and he blesses them for it. God is doing something new. He is recreating the world through this people. And at the very end of the book of Exodus, the Lord covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So Exodus begins with God's absence, but ends with God's presence filling the temple, which the tabernacle, which finally brings us to the start of Leviticus, where the Lord continued to call Moses. So God had been talking to Moses. He'd been telling him, you gotta, you got to leave your place of isolation and confront Pharaoh. And then he calls him up onto the mountain, and he gives him these commandments. He calls him to build this tabernacle, and he continues calling him here at the beginning of Leviticus. Now, the other night, uh, we attended a commencement ceremony for Owen, even though he's off at university, came back and did his high school commencement. And, and the principal was giving a bit of an introduction speech, and she was talking about how, how old these people, these students are now. She said, you know, when you were born, there was no such thing as an iPhone. And they were like, oh my goodness, can you even imagine a world without cell phones? We can't. I mean, the reality is that we have the ability to just communicate with whoever we want, wherever we want. And when you actually stop to think about it, it's really kind of strange. We talk to people while we're driving, if we're stupid. We talk to people in the classroom. And you can see this kid, uh, just for you teachers here, this is what they do. They put like a book, you know, like that little basket, and it hides them. Sorry, kids, I just gave away your secrets. Um, talk on the phone, we can talk to people right in the middle of a class. We talk to people in the theater. You know, watching a movie isn't enough. We talk to people when we're walking the street with a baby pushing in the carriage. Like, that sounds smart, especially since the drivers are also talking to people while they're driving the vehicles. Like, it's just bizarre, but of course, the most bizarre place of all that we talk to people is in the bathroom. Yes, even in the bathroom, we talk to people. So we can communicate with people whenever we want, wherever we want. But it wasn't like that at the beginning of Exodus. In chapter 33, verse 11, there's a description of the tent of meeting where it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Can any of us remember back to the time when that's how you communicated with people, when you would sit down and look at them in the eye? Oh, I know, it's so long ago. But there was a time in, in history where God would meet with only the leader of his people and only in a very specific place called the tent of meeting. And so when God continues calling Moses, it's from this special place, this place that was set aside specifically for this face-to-face -face kind of conversation. Now, having a tent of meeting was not unique to Israel. Other nations would have done the same thing. They would have been kind of calling out to their gods. They're in the middle of a war. They would have went to this particular place and tried to seek whatever their god's direction were. But what God said to Moses was certainly unique. In verse 2 of Leviticus chapter 1, God says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Whenever anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. Now the Hebrew word for offering means come near. And this is one of the revolutionary aspects of what God is saying to Moses here, that you can come near to this God. After giving instructions about the herd, which we heard read for us this morning, the passage continues with identical instructions about an offering from the flock. So maybe you don't have cattle, but maybe you could bring a sheep or a goat. You bring a male without defect. You slaughter the animal, you splash its blood, you cut it to pieces, you wash the organs and the legs, and you burn it on the altar. Rinse and repeat, like this is what you do, you know, whether it's the herd or the flock, or even uh, birds was the third option that comes a little later. It's a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Repeat it again, it's a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. 
Can you even imagine if that was what worship looked like today? Like you show up here at 22 Willow, and before you come in to worship together, you slaughter a sheep on the steps of the building. Like that's what you do. You, you carry the sheep from your car, and you lay it down and just like slaughter it. And you do all these things that are described. Can you imagine if that was like what worship was for us? Leviticus 1, 14 to 17. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers. He shall tear it open by the wings. Lovely. We were brainstorming in our house, what should we do for pumpkin carving this week? And, and our family were fans of the movie Dumb and Dumber, so this is what we carved this year. Um, a decapitated bird um, was our pumpkin. But as much as I can like, joke about this, say what you will about me, I honestly don't think I could tear a bird apart, like, even if God told me to. Like I could not stand up here in front of you and wring a head off of a bird and drain its blood and then tear its feathers out. Like I couldn't do that. I don't know. I, I wouldn't have been cut out to be this role, you know, back then. It just wouldn't have worked. The English title for this book, Leviticus, actually refers to one of the tribes of Israel, the Levites, who were a priestly tribe. And so these, these are basically instructions for priests. So this book is kind of like telling someone in a role similar to myself, like, this is how you lead people to approach God. It's primarily a priestly book. And there's an assumption at the start of these instructions, which is interesting. When anyone among you brings, etc., and etc. So I think sometimes when we read a passage like this, we think, oh my goodness, like God has so many rules. There's so many things that people had to do, all these hoops to jump through. But it says, this wasn't like a command here. This wasn't like this is what you have to do. This is saying people are going to come to me. They are going to want to make some kind of a sacrifice, and then this is how you should help have them do it. These are the instructions on how we do this. N.T. Wright says, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is or what he's done. And so God is saying, people are going to want to worship me. I mean, you've just come out of slavery. You're out here in freedom, finally. And people are going to say, how do we thank God? What can we sacrifice him? And so God says, so here's some instructions for you. This would be a good way to do it. Now, the next two chapters of Leviticus provide instructions on the grain offering as well as a fellowship offering. Each of these first three offerings were voluntary. They weren't required. It was just when your heart overflows with love for this God who's redeemed you, this is what you can do to show your thanks. So Leviticus doesn't start with laws and commands, but with an invitation. And we can't allow the gory details of these early chapters to distract us. The main thing we want to hear is that we are invited we are invited to come to God. Bert Wenenwich wrote, worship again and again interrupts the course of the world. Through worship, the community testifies that the world is not on its own. We're not alone here. We're with God in this. A couple of years ago, I read a book by a serious baseball fan reflecting on how the off-season affects her. This is the first week of the, the long off-season for baseball fans. And she talked about this conversation she had with her husband one time, and this is what he said to her. He said, you're sad because you belong to some bizarre church where four months a year you're not allowed to worship. Now, that's a great explanation of the baseball offseason. For four months of the year, you can't participate in this. Now, imagine if for four months of your year you were not allowed to worship God. But God's people are always allowed to worship. 
and all people are invited. When you think about the scale of the offerings that are suggested in these early chapters, it's the herd, which would have been the most valuable of animals, and then the flock, which would have been in the middle, and then birds. Like, if you can't afford, if you don't have a flock, if you don't have a herd to draw from, then you can at least find a bird to bring as an offering here. There's a scale of value here. Even though they had just come out of slavery, there was already this social ranking, and God was trying to, like, level the playing field. It doesn't matter. Just because you have more doesn't mean that your offering is worth more. You just got to bring something right? And so we're reminded of this passage in Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus enters the temple area, and it says that he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. You see, Jesus was upset because God long ago had set this up that anyone can make an offering to God. And people were there selling and trying to make a profit off the lowest level of offering that people could offer at the temple. But even a small offering has got to cost you something. And we hear this in the reflection of the, the phrase, an animal without defect. You see, you couldn't say, all right, I want to give thanks to God and go around like your sheep and say, well, that one's only got three legs and bring it. Like, no, that's not going to work. God's going to be like, that's cheating. Like, that's not much of a sacrifice for you there. So you actually had to take care of raising these animals so that you could have an animal that didn't have any defect so that you would be able to bring this offering. So it was this expression of like, thanks, I'm giving you the best of what I've got here. Not the worst. I'm not giving you the leftovers that no one cares about. I'm giving you something that costs me something that has value. And maybe we think that all of these rules and regulations take away from the spirit of the gift. And I've had conversations, you know, over time about this with respect to even giving an offering in our own day. And the idea that another principle that comes from the book of Leviticus is the tithe, or giving the first 10% of what you have to God. And this idea, well, these are just rules. These are just commands, and we're not supposed to live that way anymore. But when life is chaotic, what do you need? I mean, you've got to remember that the Israelites came from a very ordered life as slaves, into a very disordered life as free people. They're now wandering in the wilderness, and they don't have any structures really to their lives. So what do they need? Just more freedom and, and whatever? No, they actually needed some structure, some assistance to guide them in how they could live their lives and how they could worship. They didn't need more chaos and disorder and fragmenting. That had already happened, but they needed order. Last year, a book came out. It was a bestseller uh, by retired Admiral William McRaven. He was, wrote this book to teach some of the examples or some of the lessons he learned during Navy SEAL training. And one of his rules that was kind of became this popular phrase for a while is if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. And the reason that he pointed to this is that you were able to get the first thing that happens in your day, you're able to succeed. You're able to get something off the list and say, I have done something and I know that I have done something well right as soon as you start your day. And that's a good way to orient ourselves at the beginning of a day. These people were set free, but they weren't set free just for their own freedom, but to show the world what true freedom looks like and to become a channel for God to flow through. Remember back to Genesis 12. God said to Abram, you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. And so these people couldn't just be free from slavery and then live for themselves. They had to find a way to orient themselves around the heart of God. They went from having nothing to having so much. So what would they do with this much that they had? Well, bringing an offering was akin to saying, I acknowledge that all of this is a gift from you, all of it. I had nothing just a few sh short months ago. So I'm intentionally setting aside a portion 
to honor that truth and that reality. Jamie Smith says that worship is an intentionally decentering practice, calling us out of ourselves and into the very life of God. This past Friday afternoon, I went to a garage and had a new set of winter tires installed on my car. Even though it's a beautiful sunny day this morning, we know it's coming. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to get hit with it. And different tires are appropriate for different seasons, and, and different offerings are appropriate for different stages of life as well. The fourth and fifth offerings were called the sin offering and the guilt offering. It starts getting a little heavier. So at the beginning, it's this voluntary. It's like, you want to worship God. You want to bring him something. Well, here's some examples. Here's some ways that you can do that. But then it's like, gets to this point where it's like, you've done something wrong. Now what are we going to do? How are you going to communicate with God? How are you going to come near to God when you've actually done something wrong? And so we can read a little bit about this in Leviticus 4. Uh, we'll read verse 27 and 28. If a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he is guilty. When he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering from the sin he committed a female goat without defect. I was thinking about it this week. I'm in the process of kind of editing these welcome brochures, brochures we have in our pews here uh, because a lot of things have changed in the last couple of years. And I was thinking, what if we had like a section in our like what to expect this morning that said, you know, talked about this kind of language. But, well, you're going to bring your lamb in. You're going to lay it up on the altar. Like that would turn people away. It wouldn't be a very welcoming gesture, right? I think all of us, even by this point in the sermon, I can imagine that you're probably just tired of hearing about animals being killed. And, and you think like there's got to be like some better way here. And I'm sure that God's people were thinking that exact same thing. There's got to be a better way. Is this honestly what we have to do forever? And the fact that they're asking that question, it's almost like, yes, there is a better way, but you just got to hang on. And if this morning you're thinking the same thing, I'm, I'm tired of hearing about the animals being killed. That's right, just hang in there. We're getting somewhere good. But we got to start at the beginning. Now let's take a look at this passage um, from Levit Leviticus 4. It continues, The priest shall burn it on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, in this way, the priest will make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Now, here's a word that I could easily spend the whole morning talk about, atonement. It was in our reading this morning as well. What does this word mean? Well, I remember when I was studying theology all of those years ago, uh, they, they gave this very simple way of understanding an incredibly complex word. And they said, if you just break the word up into three parts, at-one-ment. It's at-one-ment. It's something that happens in order to make two things that are apart become at one with one another. So our sin separates us relationally from God, and so atonement is something that happens that brings us back into relationship with God. So there's this fabulous passage, and I wish I had a lot more time to talk about um, this in more detail, but I'd encourage you to read Leviticus 16. The whole thing is powerful, but I want to read just a little bit of it, because this is called the Day of Atonement. So all of these offerings, they're, off, they're being offered on a regular basis, all of these sacrifices, but there was only one time during the entire year where a priest could walk into this place called the Most Holy Place. So they had this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, but there was this one curtain that held the Ark of the Covenant, and in that place... The priest would go once a year, only one day of the year, and he would meet face-to-face -face with God. And he would do some pretty, pretty symbolic things in that place. And one of the things that would happen was that uh, Leviticus 16 describes how they had to find two goats from the herd, of, from the nation of Israel. They had to bring two goats, and they would draw lots. And one of the goats would be the Lord's goat, and the other would be the scapegoat. And I know what you're thinking. The goats are like, I want to be the Lord's goat. I want to be the Lord's goat, right? But that would be a mistake, because the Lord's goat was cut up and put on an altar and burned. 
and the scapegoat was kept alive. And this is what we read uh, in verse 10. The goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, this is really kind of weird, but let me read what we, what we uh, have in, in Leviticus 16, 20 to 22. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the holy place, he had to go through all of these rituals just to make the place like sacred and set apart and all the rest of this. The tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. Now, this is a beautiful symbol. It's weird. You picture this guy with a goat's head in his hands, like naming all these sins. But then all of the, the nation of Israel know this is happening. And they know that all of their sins have been named out loud and put somehow symbolically on this goat. And then the goat is driven away. And it's this sign to the people that your sin is gone. Like it is gone. You cannot even find it anymore. That's what this concept of atonement is about. And just below the surface of Leviticus lies a powerful story whose trajectory leads us straight to Jesus. We're going to spend a little time in Hebrews chapter 9. It's a beautiful, beautiful section of Scripture. Now it goes on at the beginning of chapter 9 saying, okay, so when we remember the way things kind of used to be, we remember like all of the sacrifices and all of the details, all the things that had to be done just right. There was a purpose for this. In verse 9 and 10, this, all of this stuff, it's an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So people realize all of that stuff, I mean, it was really just symbolic. It didn't really do anything, but it helped the people grasp what needed to be done. All of the physical details about blood and organs and feathers were meant to reveal something significant about the way the world is, something beyond the physical, something visible to help us try to grasp the invisible. The shedding of all of this blood over the years speaking to the incredible cost of our sin. Sin kills, sin destroys, sin separates. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. I feel my heart beating faster as I read this. All of the buildup, all of this language from Leviticus that makes us close the Bible and say this is irrelevant, you realize this is all just pointing ahead to one sacrifice that would be made 
to end all of these sacrifices. But then there's also something here that comes at the end. So that we may serve the living God. There's purpose to this. There's purpose for this sacrifice that Christ makes. Paul speaks about it in Romans 12.1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I mean, way better than breaking the head off a bird, way better than cutting up an animal and putting it on the altar in fire, way better than any of that is to give your own life, but as a living sacrifice, to live your entire life in response to what God has done. I'm supposed to give up my flocks? Yes, but more. I'm supposed to give my money? Yes, but more. I'm supposed to give my life? Yes. That's what it's about. Hebrews 9, verse 27 and 28. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. One of the beautiful gifts of Leviticus amidst all of the carnage was that it provided an antidote to the great anxiety of the people. How do we know that we're okay with God? Well, you go through this ritual. You bring this offering. You burn it on the altar. The priest tells you you're forgiven. You go through this ritual, and the people would know, okay, I'm all right with God. So you could know where you stand with God. And we have the same gift in Christ, and this is the really good news. You can know where you stand, and you can stand up tall because all the mess of your life, all of the sin and the guilt that you can muster up doesn't hold a candle to the great love that Christ showed us when he laid down his life. And so... In Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 25, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And we've cleared the stage here this morning because we're going to observe communion in a different way. And I'm going to invite those who are serving to come on up at this time, and, and for those who are going to play some music to take their space as well. This morning, we're going to invite you to come forward for communion. And if you are able and comfortable, we're going to invite you to make your way up to the altar rail. We aren't in a rush to get out of this place this morning, so we're going to take our time. And you're welcome to come up to the altar and to kneel down, and we'll be serving the elements from here. One of the interesting things about the altar is that it's meant to remind us of two different things. It's meant to remind us, first of all, of the old altar on which these herds and flocks and birds would have been sacrificed. And so as you come up this morning, maybe even just imagine or picture yourself as one of these people in Leviticus bringing this offering onto this altar here. But it's also meant to remind us of the shape of a tomb, that really we don't have to bring those offerings anymore because one sacrifice was made for all time, and that's Christ. And so we remember that he gave his life for us and so I invite you to come 
and we'll serve around the rail. And if you're not able to make it up or you're not comfortable, you're welcome to take the elements from the table down here. Pope Benedict said the true worship is the living human being who has become a total answer to God, shaped by God's healing and transforming word. And true priesthood is therefore the ministry of word and sacrament that transforms people into an offering to God. Now the truth of it is I couldn't tear a bird's wings off if you paid me to. So I never would have cut it as a Levitical priest. But I'm able to offer what Benedict identifies as true priesthood. Word and sacrament. The story of God's great love for us that we've talked about this morning. And the physical elements that point us beyond the physical and transform us by faith into an offering to God. I'll read the words of Jesus, and then we'll invite you to come, starting at the front. If this is something that would be awkward or uncomfortable for you, we invite you to just stay in your seats and use this as a time of thought and reflection. Matthew 26, verse 26 to 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I invite you to come. <laughs> 